before we get started, I just would like to pray. Um, if we could all just pray. Uh, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May you just give us wisdom and guidance, help us to understand this text, this chapter, and just how it applies in our lives, and just help us to learn from these people, these humans who lived and had a relationship with you, and had their struggles, had their dynam family dynamics, and just that we, learn, that we would learn from them, we would learn from how you deal with them, and that you would just help us seek you in life, everyday life, uh, Lord. We thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. So now, as you've just heard, we're getting back into the book of Genesis and continuing the story of Abraham and his relationship with God. Now, I know it's been a while, a couple of months anyway, since we've been with Abraham, so just allow me to recap the story so far of Abraham's life, his journey, and, and where he's going. So we start with Abraham's calling. Uh, Abraham was called out of the land of Haran by God, and he was called to follow God to another land called Canaan a land that God had promised him and his descendants for, um, for the next generation. So Abraham also took with him his wife, Sarah, and Lot, his brother, or his nephew, sorry. Um, Abraham briefly stops in Egypt, and after some confusion with the Pharaoh, he leaves quite wealthy. Abraham then engages in battles, and he amasses more wealth. And all the while all this is happening, he's growing in his faith in God, and he's trying to be faithful, and he's trying to obey God and follow God as best he can. But at this, it's at this point here where Abraham begins to question God about where all this is heading. He leaves Haran when he's 75, and he begins to wonder what his legacy is going to be, what's going to happen with the promised land, What's going to happen to all his wealth that he's amassed, his journey, how far he's gone? He's got no heir at this point to pass it on to. So he's really wondering what God is going to do uh, for him and, and his, his legacy. So it's here that God makes a covenant with Abraham and tells him that he will have a child of his own and that his descendants will inherit Canaan and that Abraham will be a great nation. So Abraham, he believes God, and God counts him as righteous because of that belief that he has. But his wife, being barren, Abraham believes the right course of action, the right way to accomplish God's plan, is to have the slave woman whom he picked up from Egypt, Hagar, carry his child. And she bears him a child, and she calls him Ishmael. They call him Ishmael. But the Lord promises him that his wife, Sarah, will bear him a child, and that his name will be Isaac. And both of them are a little bit skeptical about this promise, but have faith that God will be faithful to the promise that he's made. And it's at this point that we enter our text this morning. So we enter with the birth of Isaac, the promised child. So the Lord visited Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah, as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son whom was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age? 
So we begin this chapter with the birth of Isaac, the promised child, and how Abraham's household responds to such a miracle. And we see Abraham's steadfast obedience here. He circumcises Isaac eight days after, um, after eight days in line with his covenant with God. And there seems to be like a real sense of maturity um, coming from Abraham at this point in his life. He doesn't throw a feast in celebration. He doesn't seem to really be shocked. He doesn't like break down and praise, bowing. He, knows, he just knows what he has to do, and he does it. And he's uncharacteristically very quiet um, for this. There's no ifs or buts or whys or thanks. He just obeys what God had told him to do. He's all business here in comparison to previous chapters. But what is made far more clear in these opening verses is how God is faithful to them. Allow me to point out what I mean by that. So verses 1 to 2 read, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God spoke unto him. So as he had said, as he had promised, at the time of which he had spoken to him. So it's really abundantly clear <clears throat> that the faith that Abraham got, uh, had in God's promises and having an heir and, and the promise that God had made him was not in vain. God was faithful to the nth degree. He was perfectly faithful. Everything he said he would do, he did in the time in which he did it. And it's what a really beautiful, simple truth in just those verses here that really sums up what should sum up our Christian lives. God is faithful and we are obedient. God's faithfulness to us, our obedience to him. So just, does that, is that descriptive of your Christian walk this morning, your spiritual life this morning? Are you obedient to God as he has been faithful to you already? So as we go through these opening verses, we move on now to Sarah and her response to God's faithfulness. So verse 6 and 7 read, And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a child in his old age. So Sarah here is very clearly filled with joy. Even she's not really like responding in a, Oh, thank you, God, acknowledging the situation. She's like in the moment laughing at the thing that God has done for her. Her joy is very real. It's not merely intellectual. It's like, oh, I've had a child. Thank you, God. It's a real joy that she is enwrapped in. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. So when I read this, she reminds me of my nanny and my mom and Irish women in general when they have news. They just grab people by the arm. It's like, come here, wait, and I tell you. She just has this kind of quality about her where she just wants to tell everyone this news that she has. She wants, to, she wants to share her joy and share the miracle that God has done for her. So who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age? So here we see Sarah is like very self-reflective about the birth of her son. Who would have thought that me, an old woman, would birth a child to Abraham? So here she understands her own fleshly natures. She understands her own biological shortcomings, and she sees how miraculous the birth of Isaac really is. 
So examining Sarah's response to God's faithfulness, how does yours match up? Is your joy for God a real joy, or is it a, a simple, I understand God is my Savior, or is it manufactured? Do you feel a desire to share this joy that you have with other people? Maybe you don't even feel this joy at all. And that's okay. That's okay to not feel on fire for God, to be the person that has their hands up when the worship music is playing. <clears throat> it's very normal and very natural to not be in a state of joy all the time. It's human. But in the cases when our joy is, is waning, Sarah gives us a fantastic method to foster a growth in Christian joy. Honest self-reflection. As I said, Sarah was aware of her position. She's an old woman, and she naturally couldn't bear any children. But she did. So she's, she, she's an old woman, but she's also a barren woman, so naturally she couldn't bear any children. And then the, on top of that, she is, she's aged. She's not in a state where she could, uh, in theory. So in our case, when we meditate on our own, when we reflect on our own nature and the work that God has done for us, the fact that we were dead in our sin, that we were lost in the powers of our flesh, that we were against God, that we weren't able to seek God at all. But how joyous it is that God has drawn us back to himself through Jesus in the spirit of obedience, that that's now our new reality, where we've come from and where we are now, and that's the miracle that God has performed in our lives. We can now obey God, and we can now seek God. We can have communion with God. We've been given new hearts. That sounds like a miracle to me. So I would encourage you to meditate on that reality and on the miracle that God has performed in your life, redeeming you from your bondage, whatever it might be, and giving you a new heart. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her child, for the son of this slave woman will not be heir with my Isaac. And the thing was displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. So verses 8 to 11 further describe what's going on in Abraham's household with the birth of Isaac. After all, he did have another son with another woman who was his mother. So we see Isaac grow in verse 8, and we see Abraham's delight in seeing that, and there is a happiness for, for a time. But there really seems to be an underlying sense of tension brewing in the household. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian whom she had borne to Abraham laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of this slave woman will not be heir with my Isaac. She wants Hagar and Ishmael gone. This is not an ideal situation for Abraham. Uh, he, Ishmael is also his son. But something to take encouragement from here is that dysfunction in the family, arguments, things like that, are quite natural to sinful creatures like us all here, even for the lives of someone like Abraham and Sarah. So if you're having difficulties in your own family, uh, whether that be marriage, raising children, or just family life in general, 
Uh, it's okay, because the family of the promise had their issues as well, and it seemed to work out for them pretty, pretty okay. <clears throat> so Sarah here has, is the one that has the issue. And I think the primary reason for that is that she, she's jealous. She's gone from one Irish mother, from Camille, wait, Natalia, the news and stuff like that, to another one, like, my son won't grow up at yours. She's gone from two extremes to another. The joy she eagerly wanted to express to people outwardly to give has now turned to a desire to protect what she has. She values herself and Isaac over Hagar and Ishmael and seeks to exclude them, be gone with them, kick them out of the family. And this again is very natural. After waiting so long, um, and the fact that it was her suggestion in the first place for Hagar to carry Abraham's child, she now wants to protect and keep and hold this new reality that she has with Isaac. She turns inward with her joy, as opposed to being outwardly expressing it as she wanted to before. Now, as I say this, I'm not passing any judgment on Sarah in the slightest, but just merely pointing out what the text, what the Bible is saying about the situation. But Sarah here can really serve as a cautionary tale for us all. And that can we become so overcome with joy and our Christian identity that it turns from a zealous joy to a jealous joy. That we sometimes think, I don't want this person to come to church, or I don't like the way that person acts in church, or I don't like talking to these people at church. That church is only for me, that I come here to be served. Do we sometimes think, I don't want to share the gospel from, for people from Westside or Baliban or Afghanistan or Pakistan or wherever it is that we get these ideas that church is only for us. Now, this mentality is not only confined to the realm of church and religion. I think, it's, I think we can say, no matter where we are, if it's at work, if it's in family life or friendships, we all have our own little worlds that we try and keep and protect at the expense of others, whether that be a certain shift at work or a position in class or favoritism from a teacher or whatever it is. There's, we have our little things that we try and maintain and hold. I can unfortunately say that that is definitely the same. That's definitely for me when I'm at work. <laughs> Sometimes I don't like working in stations I don't want to do. Um, so this is certainly something to think about as we go through the text. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, for you to do, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman, because he is your offspring. So Abraham arose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder and, along with the child and sent her on her way. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. So from verse, verses 12 to 14, the focus is now back on Abraham and how he's going to respond to this family conflict. And the thing was displeasing uh, to Abraham on account of his son. So he's really naturally, he's, very, he's upset. He's going to have to kick out Hagar. He's going to kick out Ishmael, his son. This is not a good, this is not ha the, ha the happy times are over now. But what's interesting here to know 
is that does Abraham get into a fight with Sarah about this situation? Do they get into a domestic spat? The text doesn't say if they did or if they didn't, but we can assume no, and if they did, it wasn't important because it's not highlighted here. He immediately, Abraham immediately receives counsel from God, but God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. So Abraham rises early in the morning, he takes bread and a skin of water, he gives it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder with a child, and sends her on her way. That's, I don't know, reading that was really heart-wrenching for anyone that's familiar with goodbyes. He's just, he has to send her off. There's just something, you can feel the emotion from Abraham, just the way it's, it's written. So a lot of things to unpack here. Abraham is opposed to engaging in conflict that we know of. He doesn't get in conflict with Sarah about it. But he receives wisdom from God. So I know this isn't always possible, um, but it's a good principle to follow. Um, When we're having arguments and disagreements and feelings are getting hurt and tensions are rising, as opposed to adding more fuel to the fire, you said this, you said that, you never do this, you never do that, and just keep adding more fuel and more fuel and more fuel. We should try to at least remove ourselves from the situation and just stop, seek, seek wisdom from God as Abraham did, and just take, take a breather. Now, I'm nowhere, nowhere near the level of discipline that it takes to do this in a conflict, believe me. <laughs> um, And oftentimes, I throw so many things out that I forget the thing I'm arguing about in the first place because they're arguing about the dishes and it turns into something else. Um, But I think it's a very, it's a good principle to aspire to at the very least. So although we mightn't carry it out, it's something good to be aware of, to just be able to just take a step back, not, not engage with the back and forth and try and seek God's wisdom and counsel in situations. So what does Abraham ultimately do here? He obeys God again. And again, there's no fight here that we have seen in previous chapters. There's no, oh God, how could you advise this? This is my son, oh God, why God? There's just simple obedience. He does what God tells him to do, and he makes the best of it, even though it hurts him. And again, you can just really feel the emotion of Abraham giving her bread, water, hoping that'll be enough for them to keep going. And he sends them away. He does what God tells him to do, although it hurts him, although it pains him, and he makes that sacrifice out of obedience. And he makes that sacrifice out of faith and trust that God will do what he said he would do and make a nation out of his other son, Ishmael. So when the water and the skin was gone, she put the children, or she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. As she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy. Where he is, up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand. For I will make him into a great nation. 
Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness, became an expert with the bow, and lived in the wilderness of Paran. And his mother took for him a wife from Egypt. So verses 15 to 21 describe Hagar's struggle as she leaves the camp. Her waters run out. She's in a state of desperation. She feels despair that she couldn't... She feels so much despair that she leaves her child in the bushes because she's, she can't face the fact that she's going to watch him die. There's no hope here for her at all. She can't even look at this, at her own child. This is just very raw, a raw scene, really, to just to think about. Um, and I can't imagine that despair that she must have felt in that moment to just to not even look at her child out of fear that he would die. But in her ultimate moment of despair, God hears her cries. He speaks to her through an angel. Uh, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy. God then provides water for her and Ishmael. And Ishmael grows into a strong man. He lives in the wilderness, and he gets a wife from Egypt. So Ishmael, he gets a happy ending in the end, despite everything. So there's a couple of things to note here. Number one, God is sovereign. Although it was Sarah who forced Abraham to kick um, Hagar and Ishmael out of the camp, it was God who called Abraham to obey. He could have fought it, but he submitted to God's will. And it's God who provided for Hagar. So number two, no matter how spiteful we can be, it's not enough to throw off God's providential plan. God has his own plan that he's at work in all of our lives. And nothing that we can do can, can throw that off. And number three, God in speaking to her does not speak directly, but he speaks through the means of an angel now. His contact with them is no longer direct like it is with Abraham. So that sums up the content of this chapter, the birth of Isaac, the banishment of Hagar, God's provision for her and Ishmael. But what does all of this really mean in the broader narrative of the Bible? What does this small little, what does this story mean in the context? Well, luckily for me, that wasn't for me to figure out, <laughs> thank God. Uh, that was the, the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Galatians interprets this whole passage of scripture and this whole scene uh, in Galatians 4, verse 22 and 23. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the, a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free was born through the promise. And verses 28 and 29. Now you, brothers, that's all of us here, like Isaac, are children of the promise. And verse 31, so brothers, you are, not, you are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. So now we have a clear idea as to what's going on here in the, in the big picture. So we have two types of people in this world. We have children of the promise and children of the flesh. If you swear allegiance to Jesus as king, if you put your faith in the promise that he made, in the promise that he covered your sin when he was crucified, on the cross 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem, then you are a child of that promise, of God's promise, and then you are a child of Abraham, and you are within God's covenant, his agreement, his historic agreement. 
But if you deny that, if you oppose that for any reason, whether you think it's silly, it's fake, or it's just, you just couldn't be interested, then you are a child of the flesh. And if you are a child of the flesh, that means you are outside of God's covenant. Like Hagar was outside now of Abraham's camp. You don't have direct access to God anymore. God spoke to Hagar through other means, and so it is the same with these people of the flesh. God speaks to them through other means, whether that be nature, whether that be through other people. But it's never direct, and I'll explain what I mean by God speaking directly to us uh, in a little bit. But all that said, God will not just strike down these people just because they're not within his covenant. He won't just strike them down for not being there, right there on the spot. God shows mercy on all creation. And we see that with his provision for Hagar and Ishmael there in that moment, giving them water. And it's the same with the people of the flesh, the people that deny Jesus as Messiah. The sun rises and sets each day for these people. They have water, they have good jobs. These are all gifts of grace from God. But if any were asked, not many would see it that way. But God's mercy is really on display when we see how he deals with people who are outside of his covenant, as well as, as he deals with people on the inside. As Jesus says in Matthew, God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends his reign on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. So if you are a child of the, of the promise, then you are part of this, if you are part of this faith, this agreement that began with Abraham, this agreement, this covenant that culminates in Jesus, and this faith and agreement that continues on now with us here in this room today, all these years later, we can engage with God directly, whether that be through prayer, reading the scriptures, through Jesus' intercession. All of this can be done through Jesus' intercession because he has paved the way for us. All of this is also done by means of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, alive and active in us, leading us to God and transforming us into the image of Jesus, sanctifying our hearts and souls and making our desires more like Jesus's. This is all very heavy stuff, um, but it is important to know what we're dealing with and who we are and who other people are in relation to this covenant. So the children of the flesh, they don't have that. They don't have the privilege, the privilege to know the truth, to know God, to know Jesus as the Messiah for who he really was. And without all of that, they're led by their passions and their fleshly desires. They're enslaved to them, as Paul had said. And they are all under judgment from God due to these corrupted passions and a lack of a mediator. This is not good for these people. They are in a very dire, dire situation. Like Hagar was in the desert. The water is running out. Without God's provision, they will die. So they lack the new hearts, they lack the joy, they lack the grace, they lack the freedom, they lack the love that we all have here if we are within that covenant. And they will have to account to God for their own sinful deeds 
And on that day, they will all stand alone. His provision and his mercy will eventually cease and only his justice will remain. This is the reality that they all face and they don't realize it, they don't think about it. Maybe they do, I don't know. So if this is you today, if you are not within this covenant, if you were thinking about Jesus' claims, if you're thinking about his death and resurrection, if you're deciding whether or not to put your faith in that, I'd encourage you to talk to Jason, talk to Will, um, talk to Russell, talk to me if you want. Um, I'm sure they'll be happy to walk you through what it means, how this happened, all of these kind of different questions, the evidence for it, is this true? But if you have made that decision already, if you have put your trust, if you put your faith in Jesus, if you recognize him as the, prom- as the promised Messiah, then congratulations, you were a child of that promise. As Paul had said, you were a child of the promise. You were a child of the promise. And as children of the promise, we have responsibilities. Number one, we are to be like Abraham. Uh, we are to obey God in all things. We are to submit to his will. We are to obey his commandments. And what, what does that look like, obeying his commandments, submitting to his will? That looks like Jesus, who loved God perfectly, obeyed perfectly, and fulfilled his law totally. So we need to strive to learn from him, to seek him, and try to be like him. And it's, it's impossible because he's perfect. But we must seek to attain to him. We must allow the Spirit to sanctify our hearts and learn, learn from him and learn from his wisdom. That means living to serve others. That means dying to yourself. That means loving the Lord your God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, as he did. And we are called, number two, to be like Sarah. We are called to have a joy in the Lord. We are called, and that joy should be the kind that Sarah demonstrated. Pure. An infectious joy. And if that is an issue, Following her pattern of self-reflection, self-awareness in regards to the miracle God performed in her life, meditating on that, meditating on what God has really done in the gospel and how it applies. But this, this joy also must be a joy that's shared, like Sarah had desired. It must be a joy that flows from us. It must be our gossip. It must be the thing we grab people and pull them in aggressively to tell them, wait and I tell you. It needs to be our gospel. It needs to be our good news. We must share the good work that God has done uh, for us all in Christ, in Jesus. Like Sarah, again, desired to share that joy with her, with the, like Sarah desired to share the joy of Isaac's birth with everybody. Uh, so it's a wonderful thing, again, to be here and meet with fellow brothers and sisters, fellow Christians, fellow people of the faith, But the fact of the matter is that we're called to be much more than a social club and we're called to be more than a family. We're called to be God's priesthood to the nations. We're called to be ministers to these people out there. That's where the mission field is. That's where the people we need to minister to. That's the people we need to be thinking about. Although it's great to boost ourselves and encourage each other here, that is where we need to be. We are called to share our joy and we are called to make disciples of all nations. And the nations are out there. 
And with each new person who submits to God, who submits to Jesus as Lord, that is a new child of the promise. That is a new person who experiences your joy. That's a new person who experiences the joy of the gospel, the joy of communion, the joy in the church, of fellowshipping with other Christians. And with all of this being the end game that every person from every tribe, nation, and tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the end game. That's what, that should be our mission. That should be our focus. And I really believe that this gospel that we have, this good news that we have, this promise that's been answered, this promise that has been made to us, is something to be really joyous about. I really believe that this is the remedy for all the problems we see out there in the world, whatever they may be. These people, these people are, are in the desert of the flesh. Like I said, the water is running out. And they're seeking joy and fulfillment and happiness in places that's not going to give it to them. So I'm, my exhortation to you today is to just share your joy, share your individual gospel and what God has done in your life, and share what Jesus has done for the whole world. And let's continue to grow this family of the promise. Uh, let's pray. Uh, God in heaven, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Uh, I pray as we go out, Lord, that you would just give us strength to go out and preach to people, to talk about you, to have compassionate hearts on these people of the flesh, Lord, and that you would just give us wisdom and words and give us courageous hearts to minister to them for your glory and for your name. In Jesus' name, amen.